You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's obvious... Scurvy Legs, Torso, Brendan, Ironside, M.D., Big Beard, Willie P., Schmarls, Proctor, Rin Ketzel, Long Knives Logan, G.D. Fraser, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Eli the Cartographer, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course our Quartermasters, Buddy, Heather, Howard, and Hunter. And I'd like to welcome our newest patrons, Ashley, Bill, Clovis, Howard, Jack, Melissa, Tom, and Wesley. And of course, our newest Commodores. Hartman, L.D., D'Souza, Chris, and Clan Roland Adventures. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt, thank you for listening. For all of his twelve years at sea, William Dampier worked hard to keep extensive notes, and his journals, on all of his travels around the world. The process, the actual physical process through which he did so, were extraordinarily meticulous and difficult. I mean, imagine this guy, kind of a skinny priggish sort of fellow in the muddy jungles of Darien, or maybe hiding out from Spanish patrol boats in the Gulf of Nicobar. I personally like to think about him in Mindanao and the Philippines. While all the rest of the crew of the Signet were indulging in mind-altering substances and uninhibited sex with the locals, Dampier was sitting in a rain-soaked cabin somewhere scribbling on pieces of parchment. Or when he was on a tiny little rowboat, getting away from the signet or agonizing from his illness in Vietnam or any of a hundred other places that were inhospitable for paper and ink, there he was, always writing on his sheafs of parchment in handmade ink, ink that was oftentimes made from ingredients that he'd scrounged from the local environment. And somehow all of these records made it back to England with him. Dampier kept them in these little bamboo tubes that he sealed with wax. And how he got the wax for all of that is beyond me, but those tubes survived. 
Safely in his sea chest, they made it through storms and floods and boats that capsized, through mutinies and battles. I mean, that was Dampier's treasure. Now, I remember one time that I took a book with me on a float trip. Because I'm a nerd, I thought that reading a book that I was really into at the time on a beautiful sunny day while I floated down a calm, lazy river sounded just amazing. As soon as I pulled it out, that book made it maybe 15 minutes before it became a soggy, illegible mess. I can't imagine keeping reams of parchment safe in far less friendly environments, but Dampier did it, and he brought them back to England to write his book. But even though there was a ton of interest in that book in academic circles, in 1694 it had not yet been published. Now, Dampier did enjoy some investment, enough to buy himself and his wife Judith a house, but he still needed some form of income. That's why he took a job on the most prominent voyage of the day, the Spanish expedition funded by James Hublon. The question is often asked, why didn't Dampier go with the mutineers when Henry Every took the Charles II? Diana and Michael Preston write in A Pirate of Exquisite Mind, quote, Dampier may well have known about the planned mutiny, but decided not to join it, remaining on the sidelines as he had so often before during shipboard disputes. Dampier knew that going with Avery would put him irrevocably outside the law, never able to return home to England and to Judith, and never able to indulge in legitimate trade. They continue, Avery's was no privateering expedition with a commission from the king. It was not even the increasingly anachronistic buccaneering. Even though Avery's exploits were to excite some popular admiration, they were overt piracy. Such piracy could not attract even tacit toleration. End quote. William Dampier even, while he was with the Spanish expedition, he utilized many of the crewmen with the voyage, especially the chief mate aboard the Dove. He learned from their own personal experiences over many years at sea. They made his book a a more rich and vibrant text, but in hindsight, William Dampier absolutely should have signed up with the mutineers. This is episode 215, Evil Opinion. The mutiny on board the Charles II occurred on May the 7th, 1694, but the rest of the fleet didn't just go home afterward. Now, the 17 sailors from the Charles II who did not mutiny, those who stayed loyal to the Spanish expedition, they went home. Rather, they were put into custody and sent off to London, where they were going to be interrogated, held in a cell, and even uh, potentially put on trial. Not for the crimes that the mutineers alleged, but for losing their boss's property. The rest of the Spanish expedition, including William Dampier, stayed with the fleet and A Coruña. As far as they knew, and as far as their officers knew, at first, nothing had changed. But everything had changed. Shortly after the mutiny occurred, orders came down. The crews of the remaining ships were ordered ashore, they were kicked off of their ships, and then they were detained. To say they were imprisoned might be too strong a word, but only just. They were confined to quarters in sparse lodgings, and forbidden to leave for any reason whatsoever. Now keep in mind, these men were the crewmen that chose to stay with the fleet. Even those that had had no forewarning of the mutiny certainly figured it out on the day 
You know, something was afoot and it looked to be a mutiny, but they stayed. Men from every ship in the fleet sailed with Henry Every, but these men, in Spain, did not. Yet here they were, imprisoned in Spain, unable to leave, treated as criminals for the crime of not committing the crime. That May, between London and Spain, a storm of correspondence flew. Men were writing to their wives and mothers back in England, and they were getting letters in return. Officers of the fleet corresponded with officials from Spanish expedition shipping. Diplomats were writing letters between Spain and England. This was turning into a real incident. But then, at the beginning of June 1694, three of the most important pieces of correspondence in this story made their way across the channel. The first was a petition signed by over 50 members of the Spanish expedition, including William Dampier. That petition, written to the King of England, declared that the men in Spain were not criminals, and that they had no intention, quote, notoriously and feloniously, to take, carry, and run away with their ships. Their petition also claimed that the owners had, quote, hitherto unjustly harbored an evil opinion, end quote, of the innocent sailors. This was a declaration of their innocence and a protest against their treatment and a demand for the wages that they had been promised, which were as yet unpaid. The second piece of correspondence was the notice of a lawsuit brought before the Admiralty Court. This was a lawsuit by all of the wives and mothers of the innocent men in Spain against James Hublon. It alleged that Hublon had behaved, quote, traitorously, and that their husbands had been put, quote, into the king of Spain's service to serve him, as far as we know, all the dates of their lives, end quote. Now, this is a serious allegation. James Hublon was the president of the Bank of England. He was up for appointment as the mayor of London. He was on a fast track to national politics to the parliament. An allegation of this sort could derail his promising future. Yeah, I'm just messing with you. It was barely an inconvenience. Men like James Hublone don't get into trouble for trivial matters like not paying their employees' wages. Presidents of national banks don't endanger their promising futures for a little thing like trying to sell their employees. I mean, what's a little slavery between friends, am I right? These men were merely gutter trash, just commoners, after all. Who's going to miss them? Well, their wives were going to miss them, their families were going to miss them. And those uppity harlots were causing a bit of a ruckus back in London. They were protesting openly, a right that they absolutely did not have in England. They were getting articles published in the newspapers and broadsheets, and then it was at that moment that the street performers began to sing this damnable song, a song about a young, displaced nobleman, the black sheep of his family, a man who was there in Spain aboard the Charles II, a man who saw the injustice being done to he and his men and who did something about it. In that situation with London and the West Country, really most of England, a buzz with talk of these rich politicians and these bankers all trying to sell regular people to the King of Spain, well, you can easily see how this character, this John Avery, might grow into something larger than what he really was. A real Robin Hood character.
Beyond the pirate verses, which had a major influence that summer, there's another famous old ballad that really sums up this whole situation. Now, it's not about Henry Every, who was called John at the time, but it's a perfect encapsulation of why John became the hero of London. He robbed from the rich and he gave to the poor. Stood up to the man and he gave him what for. Our love for him now ain't hard to explain. The hero of London, London the man they called John. But being serious here, this was getting serious. This wasn't just a few angry housewives anymore, just a few weeks after the mutiny. This was becoming a focal point for a lot of anger in England. You know, a lot of people, regular people in England, did not necessarily agree that the Glorious Revolution had been a good thing. Now, many of those people did agree that King James had to go, and many of them liked King William and Queen Mary. But this whole new parliamentary monarchy seemed like a bad idea to some of them. I mean, it's not like all of these lords, these landlords, and all of these rich, influential business owners really cared a whit for the well-being of the people. They're all just like, well, look at this guy over here, this James Hublon fellow. There was a hero and villain narrative brewing, and James Hublon was definitely the villain, and Henry Every was the hero. And that's dangerous when, when the people people who have as many grievances as the people of England had at the time, when you give them a hero like Henry Every, that's a recipe for revolution. And remember, Henry Every was not a hero. Much like the hero of Canton, he was not out to rob from the rich and give to the poor. Only half of that equation was his goal. Now, we might agree with his motivations in doing so, and... To be fair, he did pay the men on some of those ships he captured a bit of money to cover their losses. That's kind of Robin Hood, but he was out for himself in all of this. It's not like he was building orphanages. And the villain in this story, James Hublone, believe it or not, he was building orphanages. James Hublone was a prominent backer of what was called the Orphans Bill in the summer of 1694. It was a bill that saw a number of improvements to the care of orphans in London. But perhaps most importantly, and certainly most controversially, there was an article in the bill that called for the reparation of damages and a repayment of debts to a large number of orphans and orphanages in London. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's 
first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story. But that article created yet another scandal in which James Hubelon was implicated. The bill was controversial for a number of different reasons, and to see it passed, the Speaker of the House of Commons received £1,000 sterling in the form of these extra-legal campaign contributions. The Clerk of the House received £100 sterling, and several others probably did as well. Now, the origin of this bribe money isn't exactly clear, I'm fairly certain that it could be traced back to silver mines in Potosi, and then to a treasure galleon that sank off the southern Bahamas, finally to be claimed by William Phipps, given to King William III, and deposited in the brand new Bank of England. We don't know that James Hublone was the origin of these bribes, but it seems very likely, because he personally went with the man who was implicated and arrested and convicted for these bribes, when he went to give the bribes. James Hublon, though, walked away from the scandal, unscathed. As we said, presidents of national banks don't get in trouble for little things like bribing politicians. But still, the situation in England was serious. So we come to our third piece of correspondence. It was a notice from King William and Queen Mary that they were taking a personal interest in the matter of the Spanish expedition and James Hublon. Their privy council was going to personally oversee an investigation into the scandal building around the expedition. Now, the privy council did take an initial look at the charges against James Hublon and at Hublon's defense, but before long they kicked the case down to the Lords of Trade and Plantations. Now, all of this is just as corrupt as can be. See, the High Court of the Admiralty, the body to whom this lawsuit was brought and who normally should have heard the case, well, they weren't a royal ministry, or they were a royal ministry, technically. They were the judicial body of the navy, but they weren't directly overseen by the king. They weren't made up of his personally appointed ministers. If the High Court of the Admiralty had been allowed to hear the case here, they might have used it as an excuse to go after James Hublon. And the Navy had some issues with James Hublon. You know, the King is founding these national banks, and they're sniping prominent naval officials for private maritime expeditions. Expeditions that the Navy could have handled. 
it looked a lot like the Navy might just be on the chopping block here. And for a while, in the early years of the Nine Years' War, they kind of were. This case could have been the Navy's opportunity to remove Hublon from the equation and to restore their place in England. They were taking similar actions at this very moment against the East India Company that... Well, more on that later. But in the lawsuit against James Hublon, brought before the Lords of Trade who were personally appointed by the king, Hublon had a defense. And in that defense he cited extensively from what he saw as nothing less than a signed confession. He quoted the Pirate Verses, a document that was definitely, actually written by Henry Every, and cited the Pirate Verses as evidence, as proof of Henry Every's malice aforethought in his acts of piracy against the Spanish expedition and James Hublon personally. Even if we were to ignore that the pirate verses obviously weren't actually written by Henry Every, the pirate verses still don't support what James Hublon was saying. They describe all of the abuses by Hublon and his agents against their sailors, abuses that led to the thoughts of mutiny. But of course, James Hublon left those bits out. And you know, we shouldn't ignore that the pirate verses weren't written by Henry Every. James Hublon, or I guess one of his men, but he bought the verses off of some street vendor. You know, some guy with a pretty girl showing a scandalous amount of legs singing the verses. The kind of guy who could get you anything you wanted for the right price. And that's the evidence he chooses to use. That's James Hublon's proof that he was the real victim here. Not those unwashed, unpaid sailors sitting in a Spanish jail guilty of all their crimes of staying loyal to the company. It was ridiculous. It was laughable. Naturally, the Lords of Trade and Plantations agreed with the president of the newly formed National Bank, because of course they did. This was a man with whom they often attended dinner parties. They're not going to find against him. So instead of addressing the claims, the very real issues that the wives and mothers of the Spanish expedition shipping men were facing, the Lords of Trade issued an order concerning the Charles II. It read, quote, Orders may be given that the ship, with all the ship's company, be stopped and seized into safe custody in the plantations of wheresoever she shall be met. End quote. Stephen Johnson writes in Enemy of All Mankind, quote, For the first time, Henry Every and his crew were officially on the run from the law. End quote. And you know, that's fine. I don't think any of us, even those of us who are kind of like, yeah, I would have gone with Every. I don't think anyone thinks that he shouldn't be an outlaw. Everything they did was obviously criminal. But that should have been a separate decision. That has nothing to do with this lawsuit. But no, they used this lawsuit about unpaid wages for innocent men who had nothing to do with the mutiny. They used this issue of an order to arrest Henry Every as an excuse to find against those who brought the lawsuit. Now, James Hublon's headaches concerning the Spanish expedition were far from over. When the men were finally released and returned to England... In the spring of 1695, and, you know, let's remember here, that's a full year after they finally departed England. In that entire year, they had not received a single dime. 
Families had fallen into poverty and destitution. Children had starved to death or else they'd been sold off to pay their debts. I mean, this was a bad situation. So when the crewmen did finally get to return home, all of them brought claims against James Hublon. Most weren't even looking for damages of any kind. They were merely looking to get the pay for which they had been contracted. The most prominent of these was brought by William Dampier. He claimed merely 82 pounds in unpaid wages. It was a legal battle that stretched out for months and cost well over 82 pounds for all involved. But in the end, the Admiralty landed on the side of the President of the National Bank. Neither William Dampier nor any of his crewmates ever received a dime. Before we leave today, there is... Another issue I'd like to mention. It's something that I've been trying to fit into the show for a while now, but it's not really big enough to devote an entire episode to. But while we're here in the summer of 1694 discussing financial and political matters in London, it seems like the right time. King William, at this point, was engaged in two wars. The first, and arguably less important, was the Nine Years' War against King Louis XIV. The second of his wars, the arguably more important, at least to our story and important to the future, was a war that King William was engaged in against the East India Company. One of the most prominent members of the board of the East India Company, aside from John Hublon, James' brother, but another of the most prominent members was a Sir Josiah Child. Sir Josiah was so financially powerful that he was able to maneuver and manage the English stock market to his whims. Sir Josiah was the father-in-law of one of the more prominent governors in the East India Company, the manager of the factory at Surat. This means that he often received news of what was going on in India before anyone else. And remember that prior to this time there had been something of a low-grade war between Aurangzeb and the East India Company men. There was a saying at the time in England, Does Sir Josiah sell or buy? It was something of a barometer to the health of the East India Company and therefore the entire stock market of the English Empire. The answer to that question would decide many of the trading decisions of the men there in London. Now, Nobody knew this quite yet, but Sir Josiah was on to this trend. He had agents in prominent positions that were instructed to stand around the brokages, maybe looking despondent or sometimes having heated arguments with one another, though, you know, they definitely tried to hide it. You don't want to give away your trading position here. And men naturally saw them. When other traders saw Sir Josiah's men looking so agitated... They knew that the news from India had to be bad, so they always tried to game the system. They sold as much, as fast, as possible. They wanted to sell high to get the most out of their investment. Little did they know Sir Josiah had other agents, secret agents, working through shell corporations or a version thereof, that were there at the very same brokerages to buy the stock. When all of those paper-handed traders sold and the stock in the East India Company would drop 10 or 12 percent, those secret agents would buy it at a steal. 
Now all of this was happening under King James and with his tacit approval. But when King William took the throne, he put a stop to it. He opened up investigations into the East India Company, and what he found was shocking. There was the obvious manipulation of the stock market by Sir Josiah and other traders like him. But in India, there was even evidence that there had been collusion between Aurangzeb and the men of the East India Company to fabricate conflicts that would improve both of their financial and military situations. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. The East India Company had very much looked like, well, it looked like they were building an empire of their own, the kind of thing that kings usually frown upon. There was talk in the halls of the royal court and the halls of parliament of dismantling the East India Company, replacing them with, instead of a private corporation, a national interest in India. This would have been disastrous to the fortunes and influence of hundreds of the most powerful men in England, including the Hublone brothers. It would have simultaneously enriched and empowered the king and queen. So for all of these men in this new parliamentary monarchy, men who wanted to ensure that their base in power, which largely lay in India, stayed intact, they went to war. Quiet, cold war, but war nonetheless with the King of England. Now, much of what has been alleged is difficult to prove. But some of those men in India, governors and factory managers, they had contacts in the world of the Red Sea Pirates. That is easy to prove. What is difficult is to prove that at this point, at war with King William, they rekindled those contacts and instructed them to act in such a way that would reinforce the need for and power of the East India Company. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, all of you who have left us ratings or reviews, and everyone who has recommended this show. You all make it possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.